to the house of the Lord, and those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We are celebrating Palm Sunday by considering all that Jesus began both to do and to teach in the life of this servant. We will consider verses 17 through 27, but we will stand and read verses 17 through 24. So would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God, beginning in verse 17 through verse 24. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Please be seated. I'm going to take my time introducing this section. We have the undaunted servant in verses 17 through 27, at least the way I am going to present it. Next session in Acts, we will have the undaunted shepherd, verses 28 through 38. And all of this, of course, centered centered on the life of Paul. In this man, Paul, it was always God first. The church, the lost, and then himself. In that order. That was his attitude. That was his approach to ministry. And that's what the Holy Spirit wanted us to gain from considering his life. And everything we know about Paul is because God decided to publish it and preserve it. And here we have it for our edification. Uh, Paul would write to the church in Ephesus for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. And we're in that. And this man who is the undaunted servant, certainly of this chapter, in the face of constant opposition, attacked by believers, attacked by unbelievers also. And all this because, all this suffering, because he wanted to bring Christ to the lost. He wanted to strengthen those who had already received Christ. But for some of them, they were too much the ingrate to appreciate what God had put on their front doorstep. Uh, Maybe you, as a believer, have a loved one that has turned on you, that uh, doesn't want to hear the message of the Scripture, or wants the message of God's Word, His salvation, just none of His correction. Everybody wants to be loved, but does everybody want to be corrected by the love of God? Well, if you have a family member trying to seduce you away from being firm in the faith, I would encourage you, don't give up and don't give in. Very simple solution. 
Love them, but be blameless before the Lord. You can't be blameless before all people, but you can strive to be blameless before the Lord. Don't give up. Don't give in. That's what uh, Joshua was exhibiting for us when he said, as for me and my house, you do what you got to do, but I'm going to do what I have to do. And uh, lessons from Paul's handling of those mutineers whom he loved so much in Corinth are for us. And I'm going to be contrasting the church at Ephesus during this time in her history versus the church at Corinth during this time in their history because the lessons abound. They're very beneficial to us. Paul always stood his ground against nuisance churchgoers that we find in Ephesus, Ephesus and uh, hostile believers. He stood his ground on them too. But he always did it with love. I'm still developing that. I'm, I'm working. I know what is right. But here's part of his foundation. The fear of man brings a snare. You start worrying about what are people going to think. Well, what does God think? If you got that one right, then the others fall in place or they go away or whatever. Or they, or they chase you from city to city. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh shall be safe. This is how the believers did it. Again, we have no right to think that Paul was the only one doing this of the apostles. The other apostles were, were doing their, their work too. But this is the one God singled out to preserve for us. And by this time, the troubles in Corinth that erupted against Paul had settled down because of his three letters to them, at least three, maybe four, and his visit that didn't go well. Uh, that petty drama caused again by the mutineers there in Corinth. So contrasting Ephesus in this section with Corinth, again, the contrast is stark. Corinth with their petty, sickening, self-important, carnal Christians. Not all of them. Enough of them to cause a big problem. Then there's Ephesus and her Christ-like, loving and loyal Christians that he is sending for, at least he's sending for the leadership there in Miletus, he's saying, come to me. He, the church was so solid, he, he didn't want to go there physically because he's on a time you know, constraint to get to Jerusalem. And so if he goes to Ephesus, he knows he's not going to make it because he's going to just bond with everybody and it's just not going to happen. So he is wise in doing this. But as I speak these words... For those who need it most, and I don't know who that is, you might, God knows, but is it in one year and out the other? That's unfortunate. In other words, some don't want to hear it. That's why it goes in one ear and out the other. Because when it is well received, it's, it's held on to, it is embraced. Jeremiah wrote, Is not my word like fire, says Yahweh, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? There are those that don't want to come under the accountability of the Scripture. And they look, for, they shop for a church that would just talk about salvation and the Savior. But don't go verse by verse where we can't escape the whole counsel of God, which is critical. And we're going to come to that in this section. Corinth, too carnal, too self-centered to receive correction. That element, one ear and out the other. They would not badmouth Samson like they did Paul, especially to his face. What does that say? 
This is true to this day. There are people that badmouth pastors, and they wouldn't do it if that pastor was Samson. And they'd fear he'd show up with a jawbone of a, of a donkey. What does that say about the cowardice amongst us? I hope I'm not guilty of such behavior. I'm sure I'm, I'm guilty of enough things. I don't want to sound like I'm you know, uh, uh, just above these things. Not at all. But you cannot say, well, I'm not worthy to serve you, Lord. Therefore, I'm not going to preach the truth. You can't do that. You, you, we, we continue to strive. And hopefully, uh, we, are, we will be blameless. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But these, these people that were attacking Paul... Did they not know or did they not care that the Holy Spirit was the architect of Paul's ministry? While they were saying, yeah, you like Paul, but I like Apollos, or I like Peter, or Paul, you know, he's this and he's that. He's not really an apostle. Did they understand? Did they look at his life? This, is, this goes on today. You have somebody that will come along and say, well, you know, pastor's this, or this Christian is that. And you look at their life, you say, well, they're not doing anything. I'm going to side with the one that's serving. I'm just going to side with the one. Well, you know, I think it's Proverbs uh, 18, 17, which talks about, you know, the one that blabs out their problem first is usually the one believed until the other one comes along and straightens it out, which Paul did. He writes this to those Corinthians. Again, he already had written this. He, he recently written, had written this second Corinthian letter. He says, I will very gladly spend it, be spent for your soul's Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Here's the contrast. He didn't have to say that to the Ephesians. They loved him. And they showed it. And again, there were those. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there were those in Corinth that did love Paul and were not the problem. But an element large enough, they caused issues. But thank God... Because as Paul writes, this allowed these things to come to the surface and God uh, has, it captured, has captured it for us in the Corinthian letter. I'm not looking forward to teaching through Corinthians again. Too close to home. Too many, too many things. Oh boy, I lived through that one. Oh, I know that one. But it has to be when we get there. And we'll, um, we'll, 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 we will all be edified, made better Christians for doing it, I'm sure. Anyway... Some of those Christians in Ephesus could not tell the difference between an anointed man of God, an anointed God-sent pastor, and a pickle. They couldn't tell the difference. You put a pickle in, which one's the pastor? Oh, how many chances do I get? Of course, that's satire. But here he's saying, I love you, and you don't love me. And why is that? What have I done to you? You wouldn't be Christians if God had not sent me to you. To suffer the things I suffered. The fear, the terror. God having to come beside me and saying, I've got many people here, Paul. Don't worry about it. And he sends them Aquila and Priscilla. And they, they come to his aid at the risk of their own necks. Wasted on some of them. Not wasted on these Ephesians. And one might protest, this is, this is harsh. Not at all. This is how we grow. We don't sweep this under the rug. We pull it out into the light. And just because... Some Christians are given gifts does not mean they will be loving. There are Christians that have great gifts and they have no love. Paul tried telling this to the Corinthians. In the first chapter, he says, you excelled in every gift. By the time he gets to chapter 13, he says, I, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become 
sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, pause there, some Christians would like to remove a mountain and put it on somebody else's head. And that's what he's talking about here. I can remove mountains, but have not love. He says, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. This is pretty powerful. You know, we concentrate on the following verses of Corinthians. Love never fails. Love is kind. No, it's not puffed up. does not pray. We concentrate on that. But that introduction is astounding. It is fantastic. And we cannot bypass it. We cannot overstep that. The church at Ephesus, that darling church, that sweetheart church of early Christianity, she's going to lose that love. The next generation will come along and they will not maintain it. And thus Jesus says to John, write them a letter. Take this down. You have left your first love and you better fix it. It wasn't, he wasn't uh, harsh or mean, but he's very serious about it. He said, this is a deal breaker between me and my church. If you do not love me, and that love does not show up loving others, it is a deal breaker. Lessons from the Bible for us. And, you know, we are quick to point to Berea and say, see, those, those, those Jewish believers, or they became believers, they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul was saying was from the scripture. Well, let's be quick to point to Ephesus at this stage in her history. And say, these believers, they were mature, they were willing to learn, they had a teachable spirit, they, they loved Christ, and this was Christ-like Christianity. The actions of the Holy Spirit flowing through the lives of the believers in this church. These are the people Paul is going to be talking about from this 17th verse to the end of this chapter. It is one of the Best chapters in the Bible. I love this 20th chapter. Those are always the hard ones to preach on. It's just difficult to squeeze out what you're feeling uh, based on what you have in front of you. Uh, anyway, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. I used a third of the time on that introduction. But I was enjoying it. I don't know if you could tell. Because it's God's word. It's true. And the lessons abound, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying the lessons, so long as our heart is hopefully going to try to execute them, and not others. Well, Miletus, sizable seaport, about 30 miles from Ephesus, so this is going to take time. Now, if, that, if he took a ship to Ephesus, it would have to go up the channel, and it would take a, a lot more time, uh, and then he'd be delayed with all the believers. So 30 miles away... He's going to have to wait for them to get there. Word gets to them, and then they got to travel. And uh, so it's, it's a little time, a couple of days he's going to be doing this. He calls for the elders of the church. These are the Ephesian pastors. It's made clear in verse 28. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But the Greek word here in verse 17 for elders, presbuteros, where we get our Presbyterian word from, it's, it means the matured. 
Now, you can be a veteran Christian and still immature. Just because you've been going to church a long time or claim Christ a long time doesn't mean you've matured. Uh, you can be quite juvenile still. Or you can mature. Well, these were matured enough to be put into positions of leadership. Now, when we get to verse 28, the Greek word that, well, he will, Paul will say that these elders are overseers. It's a different word in the Greek. That word, episkopos, from where we get our word Episcopalian. And that means the guardians. They're overseeing the church. They're, they're looking out for the church. This is the same person, the same office. The pastor is to be matured, except when he's telling silly jokes, he's allowed a little margin. He's to be matured and the guardian. The Presbyterians and the Episcopalian denominations, they have named themselves based on the form of their government. So the, and this is not rude, and this is how it is. They, they, they wouldn't deny it. They're not ashamed of it. The Presbyterians say, well, we are run by a committee of elders. And the Episcopalians say, well, we're run by the pastors. And so that's the difference. Hopefully here you have, the, uh, as Paul presents it, that these qualities are supposed to be joined into a person called the pastor. I'll point that out from the scripture in a moment also. So Paul uses elders and overseers interchangeably for the same office, guardians, matured guardians of the flock. The elders, that draws attention to their spiritual maturity. The overseer indicates the nature of the work that these elders are engaged in. And you combine these two offices and you have pastor uh, the, to be mature in nature. Now, our English word pastor comes from the Latin for shepherd. Pastor means shepherd. It's Started, well, it started way before, but in the New Testament church, Jesus brings it to the front when he says to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That's the, that's, that's the language for a pastor. That's the metaphor for a pastoral ministry of a flock, which Paul will bring out in the next session when we talk about the undaunted shepherd. Here's the undaunted servant, because he's going to talk about how he serves the Lord. Acts 20, verse 28, you, have, you should have, if you have your Bibles open, you look down there with me. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock. See that pastoral language? Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that's that word episcopus, to shepherd, it's, it's to feed, it's, it's the word for shepherd, that's correct, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so in that 28th verse, he's joined it all together. So where it says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the pastors. Though so he calls them elders, and we'll bring that out a little bit more, because it's a little bit, it expands a little bit more. We Christians should know this, how our faith is structured. Uh, what is the antithesis? What's the opposite? If, if you don't know its structure, then you don't know its structure, and that's not a virtue. There are others in, within the church who oversee affairs of the church and who are not pastors, but they are mature, and they look out for the interests of the assembly in their assigned roles, for board members, for example. 
when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, let the elders, that same word, uh, episkopos, uh, who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Then he says, especially those who labor in the word and teaching. Uh, that's, this is doctrine from Scripture. Some Christians resent pastors tending the flock with authority. I guess they just want them to be doormats or pincushions. I, I don't know. But uh, it's, uh, you, we should embrace this. You know, pastors don't come around telling you what car, kind of car to buy, uh, what, uh, to, you know, who to marry. or They don't try to run your lives. That, that is a type of Christianity called shepherding where that does take place. That's abuse of power. This, uh, what Paul is saying is when it comes to the assembly, somebody's got to be in charge. And when he says in charge, he means it because this is what he says to Titus. He says, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. If they don't like it, that's on them. You make sure you do it. Then he says, let no one despise you. What a shame that he's got to say that. Why would he have to say that? Because there are people in the churches that are despising pastors for upholding the authority given to them by God. I, um, I like these things not because I am a pastor, because I'm a Christian. I knew these things before I became a pastor. I enjoyed them then. I know the value of command structure. I know what happens when there is no leadership. Jesus said, I was, the prophets and Christ brings in on it, I will smite the shepherd and the flock will be scattered. That ain't good. Satan knows who to target. He knows where his weapons of mass destruction are to be spent. They talk about how important the church is. Look how much energy Satan puts into destroying a church. Anyway, if he can just put you to sleep, and not me putting you to sleep, if Satan can cause you to fall asleep as a Christian at your post, if he can corrupt it any way, he'll take it. The bottom line, Paul is addressing the pastors, pastors which likely includes a few other leaders also who were uh, what you would say like trustees in the church, valuable people in the church. Verse 18 and when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Well, he's probably still a little singed at what he had to go through at Corinth. And so he's, he's saying to the Ephesians, where he spent three years establishing this church, and he, he's saying, You know, I've been transparent with you. This uh, living in a glass house in front of them, his witness, that is, well, if you live in a, if you're if you're transparent in that glass house witness, it may turn into a hot house environment, but you're fit for it. He said a similar thing to the, another noble church at Thessalonica. He said, "For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance." See, the gap between Paul's preaching and Paul's life was a very narrow gap. They were, they were together. He was a man who practiced what he preached. And he goes on to say to them, As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Is that not powerful? You know what kind of people we were when we were there. And it was for you. And he talks in detail about it in that first chapter. How he worked not wanting to uh, burden them. 
It was not wasted on the Thessalonian church. They received this. They said, Amen. The Ephesians, when he's done with them, they're going to weep on his neck and cry and kiss him. They're so touched by how much he loved them. What about Corinth? What was their problem? What about today when the same practices take place? And you see someone do something goofy in the church, the pastors rule over it, and then the people turn on them for standing firm. And they go him and haw, not all Christians, not even near, but enough. Then they go him and haw about they can't find a good church. Christians kill churches in this country and nobody else. Uh, there are other countries where the, you can go to parts in uh, Sudan where you could have Muslims trying to kill the church. Or you can go to China, communist China and you have the government trying to kill the church. But in America, it's mainly Christians. And that should not be. And that's why we are looking at these things. Uh, maybe you don't see them. Maybe you're comfortable in the pew and you don't see these things. They are there. Verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Uh, everybody knew it. Paul's chased out of no less than ten cities by his own countrymen. And it broke his heart. He said, I'd, give my, I'd give my soul for them, he said. God would say, it ain't, your soul ain't that valuable. Moses did the same thing, you know. And God said, yeah, no, we need somebody cleaner than you to save souls, and that would be Jesus Christ. But anyway, it's appreciated. These men loved their, the, the people that they ministered among. And I don't know how you would love the word of God and not desire and work at loving the people that you minister uh, uh, among. So there are Christians, or you, let me put it in a question format. Are some always seeking fulfillment in Christ without ever finding it because they don't serve? It's a good question. And if you're struggling... Look, you know, I, we talk about uh, the, the teens, you know, what they're facing in the world, what their the, the struggles with their faith. The door is open for those teens with the parental consent to come to the pastors and talk about it. We don't turn our back on you. We point out, we say, listen, the world is trying to eat you alive. I was just watching. I don't know how I got it. I was just watching this monitor lizard eat a deer alive. I couldn't finish it. It was just awful. This is what Satan wants to do to people, and he does do this to people. And uh, so it's not like, oh, here's the rebuke. Okay, have a nice day. It's like, well, this is the rebuke. If the shoe fits, you've got to wear it. We'll help you get it off. But you've got to come. Uh, so anyway, the word Paul uses here in verse 19, serving the Lord, that verb for serving is slave. Nothing short of slave. Uh, it goes deeper than servant, but it does not go without serving. And this is Christianity. We're slaves for Christ. I don't care what other people think about that word. We know what the Bible says about that word. And we are willing slaves. We are bond servants. We're the bond slaves is the accurate translation. I think some of the translators toned it down some because of the, you know, the stigma attached to slavery. But for Paul, he says, I'm good with being a slave for God, for Jesus Christ. Not only, uh, I would have it no other way. 
And he says, with all humility. Now, I think we should listen to what I'm about to say about humility. Not that I've got it. Wherever you find a truly humble heart, you will find a heart familiar with defeat. You don't become humble in heart until you've been defeated and know and, and properly process those defeats. You have to, you know, you, you come across failures, your own failures, and they keep you from becoming arrogant. Uh, you can make those things chop wood and fetch water for you. Your failures in life, and we're all going to get our share of them. He says, with many tears and trials. Man, I, you know, you read this, I'd say, when's the last time I wept over ministry? There have been times in the spirit. But I, I mean, I get the feeling that Paul was just, he just never let up on this. Uh, with many tears and trials. Uh, again, those immature veteran Christians were the source of these tears, many of them. His countrymen, too, who were unbelievers. And some of them were uh, Judaizers. They mingled the Judaism with Christianity, and they caused all sorts of problems. He called them dogs at one point. Anyway, those that were giving him a hard time, you know how they saw themselves? They saw themselves as solid Christians. But they were nothing more than irritants to Christ, to Christianity, and to a man like this. Second Corinthians 2.4. Again, he'd already written this letter. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. He, didn't, he never walked away from Corinth. He never said, you know, I don't need that from them. I got the church in Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea. I got Ephesus. I've got a whole bunch of churches out there that do love me. I'll go with them. He doesn't do that. He says, I'll leave the 99 and I'll get the one. Now, when you leave the 99, you don't leave them to the wolves. You take care of them first. Uh, that's, I mean, it would just be crazy. <laughs> like, you lost 99 sheep, but you got the one? Hmm, that's not a good witness. Anyway, uh, the Ephesians, as I mentioned, they appreciated him while Corinth attacked him. And, uh, you know, listening to those who sow seeds of discord amongst brethren. Uh, that's what was going on in Corinth. You know, when I go back to, you know, I like Peter and I like Apollos and some like, you know, that's what they were doing. Sowing seeds of discord. And, of course, many of the mature ones were just lapping it up and not even knowing they were doing wrong. The dominion of self. It says it is loving, but it stirs up trouble wherever it goes. Uh, there's a way to stir up trouble. Paul stirred up trouble against lies, against Jesus Christ, against God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who sow seeds of discord amongst the brethren. And uh, anyway, it continues here in verse 19, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Again, his countrymen. The last plot, it just happened in Greece, in Corinth, and that caused him to go up to Macedonia and then head down towards Jerusalem and stop off here at Miletus. So Paul's making it work for him. He says, fine. And he leaves and he just does ministry elsewhere. The man was unstoppable because he was unhurtable, hurtable. I know there's other ways you could use it, but I wanted to use that one. Uh, you just couldn't hurt him. He was undaunted. And that doesn't mean... 
He didn't have fears. That's not what uh, to be undaunted means. You're not stopped by your fears. You continue going forward in the right direction because you know that's right. You know God is with you. And he knew it. He knew he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord promised him at the calling, at his calling, you're going to suffer for me. Did Christ do any of that with you? Maybe he did. Or, you know, I cringe when I hear, you know, God's got a plan for your life. And he does, but it could be stonings. Paul, we're going to find out, he's headed towards Jerusalem knowing he's going to suffer. And he says, none of these things move me. So, uh, yeah, God has a plan for, for your life. So does Satan. You have a say-so in all of this. Uh, it is worth it. This is not bad news. It shouldn't be processed as bad news. And if you say, but I'm afraid, I'm not strong enough, that's when you go to God. Seek, no, ask, seek, knock, and these things shall be given to you. Uh, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Maybe you'll be knocked around a little bit before it opens, but it will open. Look at the church of Smyrna. The Lord said to them, you're going to suffer more. <laughs> and, and they did, magnanimously. In verse 20, he says, How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from those and, and from house to house. I taught you publicly and from house to house. He would have had to have, to, to pull this off, he would have to have taught from the scriptures very often, in fact, all the time. To not hold back the counsel of God's word. All that the church needs is found in the New Testament, but not without the Old Testament. Uh, Luke 24, verse 47. I have this on a plaque hanging up in my office because it sets the pace for the ministry God has called me to uh, engage in. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That uh, was... That moment on the road to Emmaus was preserved. These men knew it. These women in the church knew it. That would have been continued through an oral tradition until Luke wrote it down. Paul knew the value of going through the scriptures. He says, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Without shame, in public, in homes, he fed the flock, he shepherded the flock. The pastors have this in their office, 1 Peter 5, 2 on a plaque. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. You know the guts it takes to, to serve the people of Christ eagerly as the decades stack up? Uh, he says, shepherd the flock which is among you. Not that you're above, but you're with them. You're one of the sheep that has been deputized to this office. Verse 21, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are for everyone. None who repent are too sinful or, or, or too unintelligent to be an ally of Jesus Christ. There is anyone who hears the gospel, gospel of Jesus Christ can become an ally of Jesus Christ. It's up to them. 
There is only one gospel. It is for Jews and Gentiles alike. There's not, well, this brand is for Jews and this brand over here is for Gentiles. There's no such thing. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 7. One father, one faith, he, he lays it out. In Ephesians, he's talking to them about the church. What a luxury. He writes to the Ephesians, he says, I want to talk to you about the church. And that's what the Ephesian letter really is about, the church, the people in the church. When he writes to the Colossians, he's talking about Christ of the church. He writes both those letters about the same time from jail. He's like, well, here I am, a prisoner, not of Rome, but of Christ. And, well, might as well pop out some, <laughs> some scripture while I'm here. That Corinthians, those Corinthian letters that were written at this time, they were not yet scripture as we know them. At this time in history, they were letters from the Apostle Paul. And I think most of the Christians did not realize that they were scripture, but I think most of them did realize this was God's word. It wasn't so formal, but that's why it's preserved. That's why we still have it. This is magnificent. We can't, we're not just going to throw this in the file. We are going to make copies of this. We're going to make so many copies of this that when archaeologists centuries later find, they're going to find copies all over the place. And that's what happened. Now, coming back to this repentance, repentance is not regret. It, may, it has regret in it, but it's not, this, it's not regret alone. Regret, regret can come and go, fade away, and the soul still be untouched by God. Judas Iscariot had regret, the sorrow of this world. It never plugged into God. It was all about Judas. Ah, I made a mistake. I feel terrible. I'm such a, you know, and that's not enough. 2 Corinthians 7. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. When he wrote that, that was read out loud in the church at Corinth to those who were, to the numbskulls. They heard it. That means there was a good possibility that many, if not all of them, turned around, stopped being the child in the church and became adults. We can, we can hope that, right? I do. I would hope that. That would be my vote. I would not want them to hear these, that Corinthian letter, that first or second one, and then double down and defend their miscreant Christian behavior, if there's such a thing. Anyway, uh, penance is not repentance. Somehow trying to make up for sin in one's own strength. It's, a, it's an insult to God. Paul will write to these Ephesians. He would say, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. That's what grace means, God's gift. It's not deserved. It's, not, it's certainly not earned. Well, deserved, earned. It's not an entitlement. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of Christians feel they are entitled. You say, well, you sure are hitting a lot of bad Christian behavior. Well, what should I do? Hide it? So it just continues on? This is what we're talking about. We're talking about this church at Ephesus that was doing her utmost to help the Apostle Paul versus that element in Corinth that did their utmost to help Satan by attacking a man whose ministry had the Holy Spirit as its architect, as its creator, as its engineer, all in one. Now, original sin has left me with a, deprived, a depraved nature. Not so depraved that I can't respond to the message. That's a teaching that I disagree with. I, I, we are depraved, but we can receive the gospel when we hear it. 
And that depraved nature is the cause of my sinful actions. I have original sin. That is my nature as a sinner. I sin because it's who I am. And when I become born again, now I've got something to fight that nature in this life. When I get to heaven, I'll be glorified. So I am sanctified in this life when I come to Christ. I'm separated from those who have only one nature, and it is that depraved nature. Now I have the Spirit. And I spend my life fighting it out. This is the process of sanctification. And then, of course, I'm justified at this point. Justification, sanctification. Justified means God, Christ has forgiven my sins, and I've received that. But then there's an other element that hasn't happened to us yet, and that is glorification. That is, when I die, I'll be glorified. There'll be no more depraved nature. There'll be no more death for me. No more tempting. When Satan is released in the millennial reign, it will not affect me. Uh, when he's tempting those uh, born during that age, uh, it, uh, they're not glorified yet. We will be glorified, and we will be immune to his temptations. We will have come full circle. We will be like Christ. I can't wait. Uh, it's just going to be wonderful. Uh, from God's perspective, I'm already there. Because he can't experience anything new. I mean, just, okay, anyway, that's, you start getting deep with that. Coming back to this, uh, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, that's a deal breaker or maker. You either aspire to have that faith or not. The antidote to eternal separation from God is faith, but not without repentance, which says, I see who I am before you, God. I, I see that I am a sinner. Verse 22, and see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. And so now we're moving away a little bit from having to contrast Corinth because when we're getting into the servant and he is undaunted. The mission before self. This is the Christ-centered life versus a self-centered life. You don't have to find these labels to be guilty of one behavior or the other. Uh, you can have a Christ-centered life and, and not even be aware, I mean, you know, saying it, just doing it in Christ as, as you've given your life to Christ. You do have to make a confession of faith. But you can just be trying, living that Christ-centered life. Uh, this, you see this in some newer believers. Well, anyway, he says, and see, verse 22, now I go bound in the Spirit. I willfully have no choice. That's what he's saying. I choose I waive my rights before Christ. That's what makes me his slave. I do what he says no matter what it costs. I used to think I was doing stuff like that. Uh, I'm not so sure now. Now I say, you know, I try. Uh, just the try column has just accelerated, <laughs> built up. Anyway, he says he goes bound in the spirit, which means he knew his orders. He knew what they were. He knew what his duty is. And regardless of what it would cost, he's going to do it. He says, uh, we see this in the world. We see when troops hit the beach and get mowed down by machine guns, they're doing their duty. Well, it's true in Christianity, too. He continues, he says, not knowing the things that will happen to me. He felt no need to know the future concerning his own life. He knows he knew his future enough. He's going to heaven. So rather, he rather would rather obey in the present tense that's unconditional servanthood. That's what we're seeing in an undaunted servant. Unconditional servanthood. Uh, 
you know, Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing the gruesome execution awaiting him. That didn't stop him. He was undaunted too. John 12, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. I mean, you've got to love when a person understands what their calling is. And I don't care. I'm, this is what I'm called to do. Without the obnoxious, you know, some people it can be, they, they just have no love. They think they are doing it and they don't. But many do. Many do have the love. And they know what they're called to do. David Livingston was one person in history that lived that way. Continuing to verse 23. Except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, he discerned this. He'd go and he'd hear someone say, you know, this. And he'd say, you know, this is the Lord. Paul saying, you know, this, these people, live. this is the Holy Spirit. And God makes no attempt to redirect him from the danger. In fact, it won't be as bad as it could have been. But he doesn't know that at this point. Paul thinks he's going to die in Jerusalem. He's going to be wrong. We'll, we'll die because of it. We'll, we'll come to that. But God intended to use these chains and tribulations. Uh, what if God came to you and said, hey, I need to put you in some chains, give you some tribulation so I can spread the gospel? You good with that? Good question, Lord. Uh, I'll have no problem if you can just miraculously <laughs> fill me with your spirit so I can do it. So, you know, we hear about the consequences of doing the wrong thing. Here are the consequences of doing the right thing. Uh, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution in some form. Verse 24, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. None of these things move me. But, that disjunctive connects with what he's saying. He knows trouble's coming. But, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus who testified to the gospel of the grace of God. I'm not going to spend any more t- much time on this verse. It says it all. And he's going to serve with joy, not allowing himself to become jaded. So we talk by the Corinthians. He doesn't allow himself to become bitter or resentful towards them. He continues to love them, he, apparently at an accelerated rate. Without this resolve, verse 24, he could never have said this years later, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the foundation for that near final statement. Undaunted is this servant. Verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I gave, I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. I just had a flashback, you know, of him preaching so long that Eutychus fell out the window. Really nothing to do with this, but... Him preaching. He preached. Taking away any complaint about long sermons. Uh, Anyway, uh, Paul thought he was going to die. He's not going to see my face anymore. He thought he was going to die. It's a reminder that he was human. He is not Jesus Christ. You know, he said, I I, want to go to Spain. He wrote to the Romans. When I I go to Spain, I'm going to stop off in Rome. We have no biblical evidence that he ever made it out of Rome on his first arrest. Not direct evidence. We have the Second Timothy letter, which, you know, uh, he's again in jail, uh, and he is facing death. And it's believed he didn't die then either. And uh, what we do have, that he made it to Spain, 
are a few ancient texts that either imply it or assert it outright that Paul made to Spain. And the first one is a man named Clement. Clement the first, first Clement, he, he writes a letter, first Clement. Anyway, he's mentioned in Philippians 4.3, believed to be the same man. Uh, and he writes of Paul some 20 years after Paul said, I want to go to Spain in, in, in the Roman letter. He writes, having reached the farthest limits of the West. That's what he said about Paul. At that time, that would have been Spain. If you look at a map and you're in the, that part of the world, the Mediterranean area, Spain is the farthest part. Uh, you know, of course, Portugal right there too. But anyhow, uh, that's what, how that would have been understood, that he made it to the Atlantic Ocean. Christendom, another Christian, a couple of hundred years later, Christendom, is his, his name, was a great Bible teacher of his day. And he writes, after Paul, after he, which is Paul, had been in Rome, he returned to Spain. But whether he came thence again into these parts, we know not. And he was a overseer in modern Turkey, Constantinople today. Uh, so then there's one more, Jerome, who gave us the Latin Vulgate, which is the translation of the Bible into Latin. And Jerome writes, Paul, having been in Spain, went from one ocean to another. And so there you have uh, extra biblical materials saying Paul lived beyond this experience, this imprisonment. And that's why I brought it up. Paul, you're wrong here. And uh, uh, that, that's what we're just talking about. Anyway, verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I've done my duty. Samuel did a similar thing in 1 Samuel chapter 12. I've walked before you since my childhood, he told them. And he says, if I've stolen anything from you, taken your ox, you tell me now and I'll repay it. And he said, no, you have not. Anyway, this is this 26 verse is linked to Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33 on preaching uh, not being uh, what's the word? Negligent. You know, when, when I grew, where I grew up, if you didn't shovel your walk and someone slipped on it in the snow and ice, you, that, that negligence, you were accountable for that. And uh, see, Paul Ezekiel is saying, was told by God, if, if you don't preach to these people I'm sending you to, I'm going to hold it against you. Uh, so <laughs> Ezekiel said, I have preached to these people. In fact, I wrote this book to show you. Uh, verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Why would he have to say this? Because persecutions and beatings did not deter him. That's why. All he suffered, he kept preaching. To succeed at this, one has to love God more than themselves. More than loved ones. You can, there's enough love in you and I to love everybody and still lose none of it for ourselves. And still have enough for God. More for God. Jesus warned about that. So don't go be loving your family more than me. Don't, don't bring that. You know, I mean, he didn't say it in the way I'm giving it to you. But that's where, it, where you end up. He says it harder. You don't hate mother, father, sister, brother. That contrast gets everybody. Whoa. What word did he use there? Uh, so you'll never forget that. And so by contrast, the love for God is in another zone than your love for everything else. That's the ideal. Well, he says the whole counsel of God. 
Well, some churchgoers don't see a need for the entire word of God. They're just happy to cherry pick the verses they like. Some don't want the Bible to confront a carnal lifestyle. They're their carnal lifestyle. Or I've seen this more than once. You have a child, you have a, a Christian that is against, uh, let's just say, homosexuality, because that's the one I have in mind. And then their child says, that's what I am. This is years ago. This is before we, this crazy age. And then that person becomes, begins to attack the church that speaks against homosexuality. You see that, that kind of crazy stuff goes against what Luke wrote in Luke chapter 14 about loving the Lord first. They should have stood firm. They should not have backed down. I will pray for you, but I'm not going to give you anything that takes away from Christ. We also see it this way. We see parents send their children off to college to get an education. The kid comes back with wacky ideas and converts the parents to wacky ideas. Vilifies their church and their pastor. And the parents leave because they're kid after all. They know everything now. I tell you, in the 60s, I was rooting for those cops. And those, when those campus people, why aren't they in class? Who made them so smart? Well, you have agitators for professors. You have professors that have written books on how to resist the government. We had one as an ambassador in Russia. 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 It's not Russia. Russia Shoner. No, no. Not. Russia. All right, I've kind of gone off with this. I mean, what I want to say is there are gray cardinals. There are those powers in back of events that are causing the trouble, and no one sees them. They're, they're, they're just so separated from I didn't do anything. I just taught in the university. I'm a professor. Not all of the professors are like that, of course, but enough of them. Anyhow, and you, you, know, you wonder, how did this country get so messed up? Well, the universities have become Satan's pulpit. And uh, it's not a short, not hard to find it. Not all of them. Again, I can't stress that enough. Uh, I think our kids should get an education in universities and um, stand up to these professors and say, look, I'm not here to hear your politics. I paid to learn architecture or, you know, mathematics, whatever it is. That's what you need to teach me. And if you say one more word, my pastor's going to come here. He's going to be waiting for you by your car or in your kitchen. You don't know this guy. He's got a carnality to side to him. <laughs> he get in the flesh. Won't be good for you. He'll dress up like a UPS guy. <laughs> Come to your house. <laughs> Sign right here. Anyway. All right, let's finish this. The whole counsel of God. Uh, that means just what it says. You say, I try, but I, I can't get it. I know I'm running a little late, but I got Eutychus in my mind. You'll be all right. Ask God, ask, seek, knock. Psalm 119, verse 36, which is a song about Scripture. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetedness. Don't let me be distracted from your word. I just help my heart to want your word. And uh, you know, Christians who think Satan is not gunning for them, they are asleep. That's why Peter said, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for you. I have this word, this scripture, verse 27, on a plaque in my office also. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. 
And so the care for the flock, tenderly expressed, and he's just warming up. Let's pray. We have communion this morning. Some people think I forget about those things. (laughs) I wonder why. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. May that which is from your spirit stick with us. Everything else, Lord, may you have your way with that part. But may you find us students of Scripture who are determined to to honor you, to obey you. If you're here this morning, you've not opened your heart to Christ, but as you've been listening, you've been seeing the Christian side of the story. You've been seeing what the ideal is for the people of Christ. And if you've not given your heart to him, you're on the outside. You're in the judgment box. If you were to die right now, hell would be your destination and there'd be no... Nobody's going to buy cards to buy you out of hell. You're stuck there forever. It's eternal. But it doesn't have to go that way. You want to open your heart to Christ and open your heart to Christ. Make this confession right now. As much as Paul loved the people he preached to, he could never love them as much as Christ loves them. His, the source of the love of Paul was the love of God in Jesus Christ. God loves the sinner, and he beckons them to come. He will not force you, but he will invite you. If you want to receive salvation, then come. Never mind what the world says. They got that wrong. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I come to you. There is no one else who could take away the penalty for my sin. There's no one else that can keep me from hell. I give my life to you right here, right now, and ask that you would be from this day forward, not only the Savior of my soul, but the Lord over my life. And now, Father, if anyone has made this confession this morning, may they act on it when invited to state their faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As the men are preparing the article,